You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray now that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that we might see him here in your word. We pray that you might bind our hearts to him, that, Lord Jesus, that you uh, might be near to us in your word. You, the Lord of your word, the Lord of this table that we will come to. God, we pray that you would uh, draw near to us as we draw near to you. We are, we are confident and trusting in you in that promise to us. So God, we pray for this next 30 or 40 minutes or so. Bind our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Several of you I don't think I've met. I'd love to meet you after the service if I haven't. My name is Nathan. I'm one of uh, three pastors here, and so we would love to get to know you, uh, meet you for lunch or coffee or something this week or the next, and just hear of how you came to Albuquerque, how you have come to Christ Church, how perhaps you have recently come to Christ. Uh, if you don't know him, we'd love to talk to you about him. Uh, we are excited to be in First John here. Uh, even more excited I am today just to spend a, sh- a few short minutes in just two of the most explosive verses in the whole Bible. Really, really. Uh, a little over two years ago, I preached from 1 John 2, 1 and 2, at one of our outdoor anniversary services. Uh, so if you were here with us then, some of this might sound a little familiar. We have thought about this together as a church, but I wanted to do these two verses then because this is the gospel. The gospel is in every verse of the Bible, but uh, one of our old friends at Desert Springs, he, he, Ryan Kelly, he calls them gospel nuggets. You can Just sum up the whole Bible in just this one little nugget, and this is one of those. Uh, But also, I don't feel too bad about swinging back around to something that we've thought about together, because that was in November of 2019, and 2019 seems like a whole different world. Uh, So it's good for us to come back around, and we could spend every week in just these two verses. Uh, Yeah, just an ongoing reminder, Martin Luther once said that he weekly kept repeating the gospel of grace to his people because every week they forgot it. Uh, And that is true for all of us. So it is good to remind us of the gospel. Well, everyone in the world, every single person in the world realizes that there is something not right, something not right in the world. And everyone in the world looks for some kind of an answer in which they can find 
the rightness, find the way to make it right. Uh, Many in their own lives, and they look to ways of their own unhappiness and say that if I could only get in the right school, if I could get the right car, a better car, if I could get the right job, marry the right person, things will be right, at least in my life, and that's a good place to start. Many people look around at poverty and violence and think if I could just start or uh, help along the right nonprofit, if we could get the right governmental programs started, the right elected officials elected, then all of these problems will begin to go away, or at least there will be fewer of them. Even atheists believe that things aren't right in the world, even if there's something not, no objective standard of right and wrong. Uh, For a good while, an atheist group in England bought ads on the sides of buses, and the ad they bought just said this, God probably doesn't exist. Now stop worrying and live your life. In their view, in their estimation, they're seeing that the problem in the world is just religious belief in the first place. If people would just stop being so uptight and just kind of live their life, then things would be better. If we could extinguish belief in God, society will be better off. There are entire sections at Barnes & Noble, if you still go there, or certainly on Amazon, uh, dedicated to self-help books on money and diet and popularity and education. Oprah, many years ago, though she's a little dated now, Uh, she taught that while there certainly are problems outside of us, the answer for all of us as human beings can be found within. Oprah once said, this place of connecting to something deeper within ourselves is available at every moment. The more stressful and chaotic things are on the outside, the calmer I have to get on the inside. I can just go inside myself, go back to my center, and remember what is most important. Is this true? That the problem in the world and in your life, the problem or the problems are on the outside, are external to you, and the actual solution to that problem can be found within. The answer to that question from the Bible, over over and over from start to finish, is no. The answer is not to be found within. We are all guilty, and the problem is actually within. The solution is not there, the problem is there. And the answer and the solution must come from without, must come from the outside. The short letter of 1 John is all about this. It is all about problems and solutions. It is about fellowship with God, what prevents or what disrupts that fellowship, and then how to or what can make things right. Let me read these first two verses again from chapter two. I asked Rachel to pick it up a little bit to get us on the on-ramp in verse 5, but we'll swing back around to that. But we're going to spend the majority of our time in just these first two verses of 1 John 2. Let me read these again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but but also for the sins of the whole world. Before we actually get into these two verses, remember when he's saying, I'm writing these things to you, what is he talking about? What are these things? Well, everything that we thought about last week from chapter one, these things, everything that we considered, namely that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He has created us to walk, to live, to love in the warmth and the clarity of his light of living in acknowledgement and in worship of him. 
And so we must start with God. If we miss the holiness of God, then we miss everything else. We miss the reality of the magnitude of our sin. We minimize its effects and how it actually disrupts our fellowship with him. All of these things that we considered last week from chapter one. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Let's now get to those things. So while flying over 30,000 feet last week and considering sin and disruption with fellowship with God, let's now consider these two verses just in two halves tonight. Uh, The problem of our sin and the solution of our sin. I said that this book is all about problems and solutions, and these two verses are no different. So first of all, the problem of our sin. Very pastorally, very compassionately, John says here in verse one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He is saying, don't you see? Don't you see how sin disrupts your fellowship with God, your joy with God? How sin disrupts your fellowship with other, how, how others, how your sin has caused wreckage in your lives. If you can say that sin is no big deal and that eh, God is just gonna forgive me all in the, in the end, it's not, not a huge deal, then you don't understand sin. You don't understand God. Therefore, my little children, and he's saying, I'm an old man now. My little children, I have seen the glory of Jesus at his transfiguration. It caused me, seeing Jesus rightly, caused me to see myself rightly. My dear friend Peter, when he was on the boat with Jesus, and he saw Jesus bring glory to this boat, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Seeing the glory of God helps us to see ourselves rightly. So John might be thinking, I have seen the devastating effects of sin in my own life. I have seen the devastating effects of sin in others' lives. Therefore, I am writing all of these things to you so that you may not sin. Sin is not just bad habits, mistakes, slip-ups. No, it is utter and brazen turning of worship from God to yourself. Sin is killing you. So I long for you to want to want a satisfying fellowship with God that isn't constantly disrupted. I want you to turn from the things that promise satisfaction but never do. I long for you to hate your sin and see it as ugly, see it as wicked, as misdirected, soul-killing worship. Like many of you who are going through a Bible reading plan this year, on Friday morning I was reading in Exodus 32 of Israel worshiping the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is who we are. That is not just some old story of some old weird people. That is us, rejecting the God of goodness, rejecting the God of light, and replacing him with all kinds of lesser gods that are really just the gods of our appetites, the gods of money and sex and power. Now, I'm not going to major on this theme this week, that while the idea of sin is pretty easily scoffed at by wider culture, we're not going to dwell too long here on sin, but... We all know something is wrong, all of us. There's something wrong out there in the world, and there is something wrong in here. My guess is, while many of us are victims of abuse or victims of wrong relationship, there have been things done to us from outside. My guess is I do not have to try to convince you very hard that there is something wrong in here. 
that existentially you feel incomplete. You feel broken. You feel rebellious. You feel guilty. I think all of us do. We can try to suppress this, as Paul says in Romans 1, but this is who we are, and it is something that we all as humans understand existentially. We live it from the day to day. And initially, those feelings of conviction are good and right. We've often said that the good news of the gospel actually isn't good news unless the bad news is first very bad news. If there is no bad news, then the good news isn't very good. And so the problem of our sin, seeing it rightly, the problem of our sin being gigantic is actually good and right. Seeing our sin as cosmic, treason, rebellion, it has fractured your relationship with an eternal and holy God. This is good and right for us to understand and acknowledge, to confront, to do business with. The problem, then, of our sin, beloved, is not outside of you. Despite many, and terrible, many terrible and difficult things outside of you that have happened to you, the problem is within you. The problem is a problem of rejecting the light and tolerating, even welcoming, the darkness. But as I want you to begin to live and love your way out, as D.A. Carson has famously said, we worship our way into sin and we worship our way out. And so, what is the way out? How do we reckon with this guilt? How do we walk freely and enjoy in, in fellowship with God, if the problem of our sin is within, then the solution certainly cannot be within either. The solution is from outside. Where is it, the solution from our sin? Keep reading. Verse one, but if, if anyone does sin, and again, all of us, remember in the second half of chapter one, all of us do sin. So when he says, I'm writing these things to, so that you do not sin, he's not saying, he's not assuming that you'll just stop sinning. He wants you to just encourage, or encourage deep fellowship with God, but if any of you do, which you will, continue to sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, an advocate is just someone who speaks on your behalf. Uh, the modern courtroom lawyer is a great example of someone who is an advocate. The defense lawyer knows the law much better than me. He has passed the bar exam, so he or she is legally certified to defend me. But also, like I could, the, the American jurisprudence system allows for me to represent myself. And when that happens, it nearly always goes extraordinarily badly. Because we, as untrained uh, lawyers or not lawyers, we do not understand the law. So we need someone to speak on our behalf. But what is a defense lawyer trying to do? The defense lawyer is trying to prove your innocence. This is why the reputation of defense lawyers can sometimes be less than stellar. I'm a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty, and I think our, our justice system should have good lawyers uh, for guilty people. It is the responsibility of the prosecution to uh, prove guilt. But even when the best defense lawyers sometimes know their client is guilty, they still try to argue the case as if the defendant is innocent. And that is the reality of the charges that are brought against us. I, the defendant, know that I am guilty. The witnesses, 
the spectators, the judge himself knows that I am guilty. The defense lawyer knows that I am guilty. But what makes our advocate different than a modern-day American defense lawyer? Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate, is not trying to prove my innocence. He is arguing on the case of his innocence. He does not try to show my goodness. He is showing his goodness. This is an astounding advocate. What is the title that John gives to Jesus in verse 1? What does John call Jesus? Jesus Christ the righteous. This is enormously important. In order for God to be just and for Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to be worth anything, Jesus must be perfectly righteous. Perfectly obeying the law when we did not. Sinlessly living on our behalf. Living the life that we should have lived and then later dying the death that we deserved. And then having lived and died for us, what does John say about Jesus? Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we'll get to the whole world thing here in just a minute, but for now. What, what is this word propitiation? We don't use this word in American English unless you're in a church. But propitiation is simply just a, a sacrifice that quenches or absorbs God's wrath. Our sin deserves God's wrath. Sin is completely against the nature of God. Remember, light and dark cannot coexist. God cannot tolerate or allow our daily and active rebellion. But Jesus, if Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, then he has now absorbed this good and right justice of God. God's wrath against our sin is now poured out onto Jesus so that we are now looked upon favorably by God and not just moving us out of the enemy of God's status, but as we'll see in chapter three, that we become his beloved children. Not just enemies, but children. Look back at what John says in chapter one, verse nine. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We tend to think about I think we can tend toward thinking about Jesus going before God, this angry, out-of-control God, that Jesus goes and pleads and asks for mercy again and again on our behalf. So Jesus, the Son, goes up to this angry, out-of-control Father for the 10,000th time, and he says, I know, it's Sherman again. It's him again. He's done it again. It's him again. He is still angry. He is still covetous, whatever. He screwed up again. But please, God, just give him a second chance, a 10,000th and second chance. And then God begrudgingly says, okay, I'll let him off the hook again. But John doesn't say, if we confess our sins, he is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins, does he? What does he say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. I think that blows our categories for a Trinitarian God, a triune God who has loved us and sought to reconcile us to himself. Uh, in his really great book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, uh, J.D. Greer says this. He says, the basis of God's forgiveness of us is not mercy. It is justice. 
Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. Not an ounce of judgment remains. It would be unjust for God to hold the sins of Christians against them any longer, for he would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. If your spouse pays the power bill and the power company sends you the same bill and asks you to pay again, you rightly protest this as unjust. In the same way, for God to exact one drop of punishment from the believer for his sin would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. Jesus suffered the full extent of God's judgment. All that is left for me is acceptance and faith. The reason J.D. Greer titled his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, is because he did this and he got baptized four times. He would continue to ask Jesus into his heart, continue to see sin in his life, come to the, after considering all this, that the first asking of Jesus into his heart didn't really take. It really didn't do what he thought it was going to do. So he would do it again, and then and again, and then and again, and then and again, and he would keep asking Jesus into his heart, keep getting baptized until hopefully the next one would be the one that would take. Now, so much of 1 John is actually about examining our hearts. It's about examining our lives, looking for evidence of God's grace in our lives, evidence for salvation, But do you see what J.D. Greer was doing in his life? Maybe what many of you were doing as children or as teenagers or yesterday. He was waiting to clean himself up before actually trusting in the full and final finished work of Jesus Christ, the righteous. The problem with mere self-examination is you are never going to like what you see. You know why? Because you're never going to be without sin. You will never be sinless in this life. And so mere self-examination is always going to reveal more and more sin. In fact, the more you grow in grace, the more aware of sin you become. If we had a 24-hour surveillance camera on the Apostle Paul, my guess is that we would not find or see much, if any, external sin in his life. And yet that same man would say, I am the chief of sinners. I rule over them all. The more we are confronted with the light of God's holiness, with the immensity of God's grace in our life, the more and the deeper we see what our sin actually is. When we first come to God, when we first come to Christ, we perhaps just see things that are on the surface. The more we dig, we see it's deeper and deeper and deeper. And so as we thought about before, if someone were to ask you for your testimony and asked you, hey, when did God save you? There's a lot of truth to the answer 2,000 years ago. That's when God saved me. If you were a Christian, there was a moment of conversion in your life when you first trusted Christ for the first time, but the work of salvation that brought you reconciliation, that brought you forgiveness, was on the hill of the skull outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on the cross of Christ. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. I have borne the wrath of God. I have appeased the wrath of God. I have taken the punishment and consequences for sin so that you no longer have to, Nat, so that you no longer have to, Angela. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. It is finished. Come to me. Now live in the light. 
Salvation is accomplished. Salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago. Now just live your lives in peace. I write these things so that you might not sin, but if you do, and when you do, you have an advocate interceding on your behalf right this moment. Not pleading with God to please have mercy upon him or upon her, But this is the triune God who has come to you and has initiated with you, God the Father loving you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not that God so hated the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he might bring you to be his children. So although we theologically understand the imagery of the cup of God's wrath being poured poured out on Jesus on the cross of Christ, I think too often we fear that God has poured most of his wrath out on the cross, but he has saved a few drops just for those important times in my life when I am especially sinful, just for those important times in my life or those meaningful times in my life when I'm especially anxious or fearful. I just know he's going to be angry this time. He's just waiting for me to screw up so he can finally pour out the rest of his wrath on me. This could not be any further from the truth. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins because of Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation of our sin. Now, as we have thought about just a few weeks ago from the book of Proverbs, just like loving parents do with hard-hearted children, God lovingly disciplines his children. There's truth to that. But there is a enormous world of difference in me just as a parent, like sitting over there in the corner, watching and observing and waiting for my kids to mess up so they can pounce on them from being awful, miserable little Shermans. That is not God the Father, and yet I think that's who we think he might be. Just waiting, looking over his glasses, just waiting for us to finally mess up again. I knew he would. I knew he'd do it again. I knew she'd be that way again. This is a wrong understanding of the gospel. He is faithful and just to have you as his son and daughter. Do you know and believe this? Are you waiting on God to finally and fully pour out his wrath on you? Right now, are you trusting in the finished work of Christ that over 2,000 years ago, he loved you. He had names in mind when he went to the cross that fully absorbs God's just anger and turns it into great love, turns it into great favor for you. Wherever you are, if this is something you have never believed, do not harden your hearts any longer. Let tonight be the night of salvation, that you might come to him and say, yes, I want this favor from God. I want to be made right before God. I do feel, as much as I have suppressed this existential dread, this guilt over what I don't even know what this category was until tonight, now perhaps I understand as sin, I want forgiveness. Or perhaps you have, for, you have trusted in this cross of Christ for as long as you can remember, for decades and decades and decades, but you are still holding out great fear, holding out fear that God still has more anger waiting for you. Come to the finished work of cro- uh, the cross of Christ tonight, that you might know him that you might know God as a loving and just father, that you might know Christ as a loving and kind advocate, that you might know the spirit as a wise and binding uh, agent of God, the God himself coming to make you his son or daughter. 
Now, what do we do about this whole, the whole world thing? Verse two, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This verse has been used and abused in all sorts of ways that actually destroys the gospel of propitiation. Many throughout history have used this very verse to argue that God's wrath against sinners universally is propitiated so that all sinners are now forgiven through the work of Christ. All sinners now have forgiveness from God because of the work of Christ. But we know from this letter and from John's gospel, among countless other places in Scripture, that this cannot be what John means. Look at 1 John 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's pretty clear. Or John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on those who do not believe, who do not obey the Son. So what is John getting at here? What does John want us to understand? Well, throughout John's gospel, the mind-blowing reality is that Jesus came not only to save Israel, but the entire world. John 12, some Greeks, some, some Gentiles, they come to worship Jesus, and Philip catches wind of it, and he doesn't know what they should do about these Gentiles who are coming up. So he goes to Andrew, and evidently Andrew doesn't know either. So Philip and Andrew, they go to Jesus to seemingly ask permission to send them away, these Gentiles. And after teaching in a roundabout way, even about the judgment of the world for a few minutes, Jesus says this in John 12, 32. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, the word people there is plural. It is peoples. As these Greeks are coming to him to worship and his disciples are wanting to send them away, he's like, no, no, no. They might not quite understand yet, but when I am lifted up, all peoples will come to me. So Jesus is saying that after he is lifted up, all people will come to me, not just Jewish men, Philip and Andrew, but the whole world. For God so loved the world, John 3. Not just Israel, Nicodemus, but peoples of the whole world. His blood atoned for every race we sang earlier. Well, now John, who heard and recorded those very words from the Lord Jesus, is now seeing it all happen before his very eyes. He's writing to people, likely in Turkey here, non-Jews. The unimaginable idea of God's wrath against the nations being absorbed in Christ so that he might justify and adopt sons and daughters of all peoples. But not just the world's bigness, like the scope of all peoples. That's not the only thing in play here in 1 John 2, 2. Not just the world's bigness, the world's bigness, but the world's badness, which is exactly how John nearly always uses the word world. As we'll see in a few verses in chapter 2, nearly always John is going to use the word world to show the place and the kingdom of darkness which does not and cannot love God. So he says this starting in 2, 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. And yet, this is the world. The world that hates God, this is the world in which God himself steps into that Jesus walks into because of the love of God. The world is not just some morally neutral place that once it is offered salvation that it can then accept or reject. The world is an already condemned world because it loves the darkness. It has rejected God. And this is the world in which we live and in which we belong. The world in which we were dead to God and hated him. The world in which we love to hide in the darkness and just hope that the spotlight of God's grace and light doesn't find us out. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together in Christ. Those of the world, through the propitiation of his blood. If you are in Christ, Jesus came into the world to save you, a sinner, He came into the whole world to save peoples of every nation. And if this reality, if this gospel of grace, if the finished work of Christ doesn't do something, stir something here, and then move us out externally to peoples around us and of the world, well then perhaps the best thing we can do is the counsel of Clint and Matt from earlier in the service. Perhaps the best thing that we can just keep doing is to preach to ourselves, is to be active preachers to our hearts, not passive listeners. Not by our own bootstraps, try harders, but preachers, reminding ourselves of the grace of God. And a, a few minutes ago, we sang a song written by Charles Wesley in 1742. As both Clint and Matt told us, that was a song that we sang to ourselves. That song, Arise My Soul, is incredible. It's incredible. You should should take it home this week and just read it and meditate on it a lot. Alongside the Bible that you're also reading, not in place of. But, now I have no idea what Wesley was meditating on or what, what he was considering when he wrote that song. But I would not be surprised in the slightest if Wesley had just read the end of 1 John 1 in the first two verses of 1 John 2. When he wrote, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. I mean, that's poetic language. I don't think that's really real. But it might as well be. My name is written here in the wounds of Christ that had bled for me. Because that's true, I do not have to be afraid of my guilt any longer. Because of Jesus' bleeding sacrifice, the surety of our salvation is standing before the throne of God. The surety of our salvation is not standing here on my ability to live a good life this week, to have seven consecutive quiet times. That is not my surety. My surety stands before the throne of God, and his name is Jesus, the righteous. 
He ever lives above for me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atoned for every race, his blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. He is ever living. He has not stopped his work of intercession 2,000 years ago. It continues today. Not arguing on the basis of your innocence, not arguing on the basis of your righteousness, but of his. At this moment, right now. Right now. I said metaphorically earlier, your name being written on the cross or on the holes of Jesus' hands. This is not figurative language. Right this moment, Jesus Christ the righteous is arguing on your behalf, Patrick. Not with a God that doesn't want to forgive you, but because he has loved you. He does want to forgive you. Jesus is still arguing on his own merit. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. His wounds are strongly pleading for your forgiveness. They are effectual or effective. Not maybe, but effectual. Accomplishing your forgiveness, but not just your forgiveness. Romans 8 shows us that those whom God calls, he saves. And those who God God saves, he justifies and he will glorify. He will bring them to the end. Don't let that ransom sinner die. Jesus' blood is still crying on your behalf that he might bring you all the way to the end. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. So with confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. When we trust in these full and finished five bleeding wounds which brought forth sacrifice on our behalf, rather than trusting in our ability to clean ourselves up, we are reconciled to God. It's been said that justification not only moves us out of the courtroom, but into the living room, into the family room. That's a whole world of difference. If we still think that we are standing in the courtroom of accusation, then that changes our relationship with God. But when coming to the cross of Christ moves us out of the courtroom and into the living room of God, that's a place of love. That's a place of growth. That's a place now of not just sheer willpower, but just basking in the love and the light of God. That's the place of transformation. And so, because of all that, Now, oh my soul, arise. Behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. In the Old Testament, those are two different things. Your great high priest offering a spotless sacrifice. He is one and the same. He has brought a sacrifice that is better and more complete, finally and full, that you might not just be forgiven, but have be cleansed with a clean conscience. Because of that, God owns you as his child, so shake off your guilty fears. My soul, please, my soul, this week, help me to shake off my guilty fears. Lord God, triune God, help me to shake off my guilty fears and just walk in the light and the love of Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We are sufficient to come forward and to boldly approach the throne of grace because of he who has made us sufficient.
not wallowing in shame and guilt, but because of the cross of Christ. But we often need, just like I said at the beginning of this, we must keep reminding ourselves of this reality. We must remember what is actually reality. We need remembering because we are forgetful people. And so that's what we are about to do here at this table. Remind ourselves of what Christ has done on our behalf, but also, as Jesus is the Lord and the host of this table, to actually have communion with him again, ongoingly. And we don't think that this bread and this juice or wine is the actual body and blood of Christ, but Jesus is present in all things. Jesus is here with us in the preaching of God's word. Jesus is present with us when we get together in our gospel community groups. Jesus is present here in these, at this table as well. And this is just such a tangible and visceral with our senses, not just our imaginations, not just with our ears, but now with our mouths of Jesus' presence with us, of his intercession on our behalf. So it is good and right for us to just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this until he comes because we are forgetful people, but he is interceding for us now at this moment. So this is just what a great weekly thing for us to do, to remind ourselves of this reality. Let's pray. Our God and Father, the work of theology, the work of understanding right doctrine is to actually uh, start with you so that we might now interpret our reality. Not necessarily start with our reality so that we might understand and interpret you. So, God, with you, you are light, and with you there is no darkness at all. We come to you trying to understand you, trying to love you, trying to uh, understand you who are higher than us. So we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. Help us now. Help us now to know you more deeply, more intimately than we have perhaps ever known you through the work of Christ on the cross. Even now as we take a salty cracker and juice or wine, that these things might be visceral reminders of who we are, united to Christ. Closer now to you, the right hand of the Father than anyone else in all of creation because of our uniting to him. Help us to feel this. Help us to know this. Help us to walk in confidence. Help us to walk in uh, with clean consciences, without fear, without guilt this week, that you might transform us. We pray that you might do this work for your glory, for our good, that we might not sin, that we might have a week that is more full of undisrupted communion with you. But as we go in this week, as we do sin, we pray that you would remind us of your work on our behalf even more quickly, that we might know you that we might have fellowship with you, O triune God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.